0: Grow Great is a city government leadership podcast with Lisa Norris and me, Randy Cantrell. Each week we share insights, experiences, and wisdom to help you and your leadership grow great. Our website is growgreat.com.
1: Okay, we'll get started here with a story about hiring, uh, and that. For from, from my work continuing uh, with cities uh, all over, that's a big challenge today. Uh, a lot of vacancies, a lot of competition for positions. Uh, and uh, one of the things that I, I learned when I was a, a city manager in Joplin, Missouri, uh, back in the, the late 1980s, 1990 vintage, um, a friend of mine was uh, – uh, close friends with the basketball coach at the university. And there was this, this high school kid. I think he was somewhere around 9 or 10 feet tall. Uh, the, the college <laughs> coaches were, were having duels in the street to get him. Everybody was begging for him. And he came to Missouri Southern State University in Joplin, Missouri and my buddy went to the first game because everybody wanted to see this giant play basketball and bill my friend said as he watched the game unfold this this big big tall kid when he would try to dribble you can imagine if you're nine feet tall and you're trying to dribble that's a long way for a ball to bounce up and down he wasn't an effective dribbler when he tried to run he just stumbled when he passed the basketball, it went over the head of the players. And when he would shoot, he'd shoot over the backboard. And Bill said it was just truly a joke. And this was this sought-after kid. And his close friend was the, the, the head basketball coach. And, and Bill was, was a big alumni and a supporter of the university. And he said he was a little upset. So he just went down and confronted his friend, the coach. And he said, what possessed you to waste a scholarship on this kid that, that, that you're so proud of. He's a joke. And he said, the coach didn't think about an answer. He just looked at him and he said, Bill, I can teach this kid how to shoot. I can teach him how to dribble. I can teach him how to run. I cannot teach tall. And that struck me that, that tall is, 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 is relative in, in how you use the term. But really, I always viewed tall as heart. Attitude, um, philosophies of life, and that those are some things you really can't teach people. Uh, you, you can talk to them all day long, but you can't make them understand it. You, it's just something that you, you've got or you don't have. And, and tall is, fits individual organizations. What's tall in one organization isn't tall in another. And I began to promote the philosophy of hiring tall people. I I think we get hung up with the biggest resume and the longest resume. That's not always good. Built into into these long resumes are very often a lot of bad habits. Uh, It's people coming out of cultures that are contrary to the culture that you're trying to operate in your organization. you got to deal with that baggage. Mm -hmm. And we miss out on a lot of tremendous superstars that um, have, have great, great potential. But we keep waiting for them to build a five-page resume instead of working off that one page and hiring tall. And, you know, so I've always encouraged people, look at the, the person and the attitude. And, and we did a lot of that. Carrollton, Texas was my last stop in city management before I left. But we, we put people in had no experience in particular operations. Uh, For example, typically a library director has a master of science in in, in library. Uh, We put uh, a a lady in to run our library uh, who had been to a lot of libraries, but she was anything but a traditional librarian to to head it up. Uh, When I had a vacancy in Uh, My public works department for the director's position, on an interim basis, uh, I invited a commander in the police department to be be interim public works director. And and John, not having a lot of experience other than driving around and seeing crews out, he knew nothing about it. Uh, I used to have to caution John that when your crew asks for a sharpshooter in public works, that's a long-pointed <laughs> shovel. It's not somebody in it's a SWAT uniform. Yeah. <laughs>
2: right. <laughs> and
1: that was a standing joke. And, and John not only did a, a, a great job as interim and, and rebuilding the department, he applied for the job and he beat out people who were, had previous public works experience. And, and John's now a deputy city manager in Addison, Texas, and, and changed his whole career. He changed that department. He's changed other departments and giving people an, an opportunity to to learn and grow. There's just a lot of things in jobs. We can teach you, But there's that the most essential part, I think, is the core. That's attitude. That's outlook on life. That's philosophy. It's courage. You know, uh, it, it, people that work for me had to have courage. Uh, we did things that nobody else would ever dream of trying. And so we weren't for the faint of heart. So. If you hire tall people, you're going to find your life gets a whole lot easier, and they, and you expect they'll make mistakes as they learn, but that's okay.
2: That's right, and and we similarly, I always say you can't you can't uh, our non negotiables are willingness and attitude because that's you right. cannot train those two things. You just no. can't do it. You've got a you can hire for skills, but I also don't want the person that's done the same skill for 20 years without advancement or without desire to move or learn or grow or change, or you, there's a place, obviously you need skilled technicians, but you also want, you know, you've got to be creative to get at the end result. And sometimes you can miss really great people that have the desire and ability. You just got to give them the opportunity.
0: That's exactly right. Lisa, tell us who this expert is that we're listening. That's to. right.
2: Well, we have been promising a guest, if you've been listening to us for a while, guest speakers on, and uh, Leonard Martin is with us today, formerly with the City of Carrollton, in the industry, city manager, uh, 42 years, I believe, right, Leonard? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And uh, I actually, I worked at City of Carrollton prior to his tenure there, uh, but knew of him. Aaron Reinhardt is the current uh, human resources director there that came up under Leonard. He, she was an assistant, too, and he... Hired tall, right? Put her into HR. She's like, what is HR? <laughs>
1: she didn't know what HR was when we made her HR director. And now she's actually city manager. She succeeded me right. in the job when I
0: left.
2: And so you you had a you had an ability to identify great people with limited experience that had all the ability to do the job. They just needed to learn the job, right? Yeah. But Leonard's, uh, I heard him at, a, at our TLG conference, Transforming Local Government and Innovation Um and he talked about this higher tall concept. And I thought that is fascinating because of course I'm HR. You all know that, that have been listening. There's typically rules. where all, you know, we are doing the same thing, trying to get managers out of the box of, I want a person with 20 years experience in this industry, in city government. And I think we're missing out. I think we're missing out on candidates and trying to get people to think differently is sometimes harder to do than to say, Right. But Leonard, why don't you give them a little bit of your background, more than I covered, uh, just so they know where you kind of grew up, where you came from and what you're doing now. And then we'll jump into the rest of the show. And
0: Leonard, before you start, include in that, if this, if somebody did this for you, I mean, I'm curious as you were coming up, did somebody look at you and now that you've kind of unearthed this philosophy of hiring tall, did somebody see in you something that maybe you couldn't see?
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Randy, that, that's a, a great place to start because I grew up in Wichita Falls, Texas, and uh, uh, grew up long before probably anybody on, on this podcast uh, was born in the, the 1940s and 50s and uh, grew up in a, in, a, in a very dysfunctional, poor family. And I had no aspirations to be anything more than an auto mechanic and race stock cars. And I had some high school teachers that dragged me out and uh, forced me by humiliating me and made me go to college. They went out and found scholarships and money for me uh, that that pushed me in that direction. Um, I've been an auto mechanic. I did construction work. um, You name it, I've been everything but a hamburger cook uh, except (laughs) at home. And um really just tried a lot of things. and then I became a police officer. and uh, that was the late 1960s and I had a lot of great laughs had, had a lot of great laughs at my officers because we didn't have portable radios back then. you didn't have arrest cages. Uh, you, you know it, it was I made 400 I think 87 a month and you supplied your own guns and bullets and and all that. And that was where I was headed, and um, had a, a, a and loved being a, a cop. But my my boss was a micromanager, my sergeant, and, and just drove me nuts. And I'd been in the army, and had some benefits for college back then. And I just said to heck with with working for sergeant, I'm I'm leaving, and went back to college. And I decided to become get a PhD in constitutional law had no desire to be a lawyer. I was going to be a college uh, professor teaching constitutional law. And one day I'm sitting there listening to a couple of professors in almost a fistfight over what Plato meant about the polis. (laughs) And I thought, am I going to be doing this in 20 years? I'm going to be driving a taxi cab in New York City, leaning over and saying, do you know the significance of Brown versus Topeka Board of Education by any chance? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and, you know, I, and and did graduate teaching and criminal justice and my graduate advisor at Midwestern State University in Wichita Falls. He was close friends with the city manager, of Wichita Falls, and I had a job to start the criminal justice program at Vernon Regional College in the fall of 1974. And I needed money for the summer. And he said, there's an internship at the city. Do you want to do it for $1,200 for three months? And you bet I'll do it. And um, took that job and fell in love with city management as an intern. And uh, as it turned out, my internship was ending. And it was Friday, uh, the last day. And the city manager called me in and he said, Mike, has moved on. And this is his last day. Do you want his, uh, back then we were called administrative assistants. Do you want his administrative assistant job? And you bet you called the college and said, you need to hire this guy. And they did. And he's, he did a great job. And I got into city management by a fluke, by people that, that pulled me forward. And I stayed there in, in that role for, for about three years. Then I went to Malvern, Arkansas, great little town in, in, um, uh, near Hot Springs, Arkansas. Uh, I made it about 22 months. And by golly, I left like I came, fired with enthusiasm. <laughs> and um, I am credited with destroying the city manager form of government in Arkansas because they didn't just fire me. They changed the form of government and ran a brutal election. <laughs> they put ads in the paper calling me a thief. Um You name it, it was in there, and we only lost two to one the day before the election. They ran ads on the little low-power radio station saying tomorrow you get to vote for God or the devil, (laughs) democracy, or communism, vote against the city manager. And So it was a real confidence builder. It was. You know, I mean, we had this election's in the bag. We're we're there (laughs) because I kind of figured out which side of that equation I was on, (laughs) and— Then I, I went to Rolla, Missouri, and spent seven years there from that experience when I was jobless. And Rolla's a university town in, in, in Missouri, uh, a great little city. Did, we did a lot of innovative things there. Uh, and, and my mentor taught me is city management started in 1908 in Staunton, Virginia, and we were change agents that's what it was for we were brought in to reform local government and he always taught us that you got to take risks and you got to do things better every single day and, and, and make a difference and so i did we did a lot of change there stayed there seven years went to joplin missouri and it's a it's a totally different city than than, than or malvern it, it was uh Daytime population was about, or midnight population, as I call it. it, was about 40,000 people when I was there. Daytime, nearly 200,000. And uh, uh, stayed there seven years, went to Edmond, Oklahoma from there, stayed there seven years, much different city than the others, and came to Carrollton, where I spent over 15 years as city manager. Each of those cities were, were different experiences and uh, you know, I've, I've looked at the managers that stay in one city, and, and that's great. Uh, I, I just always was born under a wandering star. About seven years was my attention span, and I had to get out. And surprisingly, I stayed in, in Carrollton so long for two reasons. One, Carrollton was a city in transition. We were going from a suburban to an urban city. And uh, secondly, I just got too old to make another move and decided I'm buying a lake <laughs> house, and to hell with this. I'm going to stay here.
2: That's right. Well, and I so enjoyed that. I've heard the stories twice now one at the conference in this and you still so enjoyable to listen to and uh, hear about how you moved. I'm curious, you know, I, you also referenced in, in the hiring tall, which is doing things totally different than what we would call the norm or what most people follow in those principles. Randy had asked you along the way, how, how did you have anybody? I know you said that they kind of picked you up, right? You had people recognize that you could do more. Did you have any one person that stood out in, in your history Leonard that really you looked back and said, made, made a difference in you made a difference in how you think?
1: It, it was my mentor, Jerry Fox. He he was uh, he retired out of Mecklenburg County, North Carolina, about 15 years ago. Uh, but but Jerry really molded me and my outlook on on what city managers do. Um, I it, when I, I was getting ready to leave Wichita Falls, uh, Jerry had a philosophy. He wrote you out of the budget when he thought it was time to move. It just simply say there's no money in here for you. You got three months to get out.
0: <laughs> now who was now who was he when you when you he was city met. manager
1: which Wichita Falls okay. when I went there. When I was a cop, well, Jerry and I used to laugh, you know, a, a good cop wants to get the city manager fired. And and I tried to get him fired and then he hired me and became my mentor and, and really propelled me in the profession. But um you know, I learned so much from him, and, and I was serving as interim assistant city manager when when the assistant manager had moved on to another position. And, boy, I wanted that job. Hometown, I was making a whopping $22,000 a year more money than I ever dreamed was on the planet. And he didn't take any – he just didn't do a public search for the, my replacement, and I was in that role probably four or five months Really settled in. Everybody in the organization thought I was the next person. And on a Monday morning, um, the word got out he wanted to meet with me, and everybody came in, was shaking my hand and congratulating me because he's going to ordain you today. Word got out he was going to name the assistant city manager. You know, and I straightened my tie up and slicked down my hair. I'm ready to go meet with him, and I walk in, and he says, you know, you're going to really enjoy working with the next assistant city manager. I thought, yeah, I love myself. You bet. I like working for myself. And,
2: I like working for me. <laughs> yeah.
1: He said, yeah, Bob Haley is going to do a great job. <laughs> and my eyes popped out, you know, and I know my face turned red with anger. You mean I didn't get the job. And, and he saw the anger and the frustration. And Jerry said, look, you've got great potential And if you're going to be a really, really good city manager, you need to get experience in the small towns because that's where you're going to learn the nuts and bolts of of how you do things. And you can stay here as assistant manager. I can make you that. But all you're ever going to know is Wichita Falls and how we do things. And you'll never grow like you will if you go out and start in the small towns and, and blaze your own path. And you've got until September 30th when <laughs> your money runs out. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I went out just steamed up and angry and then and, and went and found the job in Malvern, Arkansas and, and, and left. He, he did give me an extra three months. I didn't make it in October. I got out in January. And um, he influenced me greatly. And I think he saw him. He had more confidence in what I could do in the business than I had in myself. And that's, that, that's important when, when you coach people. That you can see some things in them that they can't see in themselves sometimes, or or they're they're timid about it, or or, or just f- plain afraid to stretch themselves, afraid they might fail. And he just put me in a situation where I can either be unemployed or I'm going to go go do this. And got to Malvern, and and Malvern at the time back in in nineteen uh, that had probably been January seventy eight, I think, is when I landed in Malvern and. You know, I'm this kid from Texas, and and uh, the, the, the dump trucks all look the same. We didn't have labels on them that said City of Malvern. And I asked the, the, quote, public works director, who was also the building inspector and had carried 15 titles, how do we know our dump trucks from a contractor? He said, oh, that's easy. Ours are the ones that fenders go flippity-flop, flippity-flop.
2: <laughs>
1: and so, you know, but I learned it from the ground up. Mm-hmm. And I learned uh, what RCP is, reinforced concrete pipe, all of those kinds of things. And, and as I moved and, and moved up in organizations, um, what Jerry did for me by forcing me into that, he could have made me assistant city manager, and I probably would have ended up retiring in Wichita Falls in some fashion. And I don't slide anybody that goes somewhere and just stays if that's their choice. But That's right. Boy, you learn so much in small organizations. I got a lot of awards in, in my career. And I used to always say they go to the wrong person when you send them number one to the top of the person in the organization because I never did crap to produce anything. And secondly, it's those people in the small cities that make something out of nothing. And uh, But so many people, they, they spend their careers in, in cities like Carrollton, 100,000 or so. And they don't know what it's like to have to live with nothing. You know, if a dump truck's five years old, oh, my God, we're being abused. And in Rolla, Missouri, our police officers, our patrol cars were the used highway patrol cars. And a new uh, police car started with about 80,000 miles on it. Mm -hmm. And they were thrilled to get a new 80,000-mile car. Can you imagine in in Carrollton uh, or Grand Prairie or someplace Mm -hmm. you walked in and said, here's your new 80,000-mile patrol car uh you'd probably be shot on the spot so <laughs> Jerry did me that favor that I yeah, thought at the yeah. time was punishing me. I wondered what did I do wrong
0: you know but he
1: he really propelled
0: me you've mentioned courage, so where did you learn that or was it just necessity because you got thrown into the deep end of the pool
2: or the budget got cut <laughs> you know <laughs>
1: I think the courage is is somewhat philosophical. When I was in Wichita Falls back in those days, you rented your phone system from Southwestern Bell. And I was assigned the task with another fella to audit our phone bill to make sure that we were only paying for equipment we had, Mm -hmm. which we found there was a ton of equipment. The phone company was charging us for like a phone at Burger King and the school district that we didn't have. And, it, back in those days, a speakerphone was a box that that sat on your desk about, I don't know, six inches by 12 inches. And I still remember it was $10 a month rent. And we got to the assistant city manager, and it was tough because they were status symbols. If you had a, a speakerphone, you were a big daddy in that organization. And and we had to make a lot of directors take them out, and the first thing we would do is go to their um the um uh, uh secretaries and say how often does your boss use their their speaker phone and they'd all laugh and say it's never been on or they tried to use it once and i had to go in and show them how to operate it and so we got him we got down to the assistant manager now he was my boss and nothing like sitting in front of your boss's desk analyst. I want that speakerphone, boy. Give me that speakerphone. <laughs> and he he started hugging it, and we'd already talked to his secretary. <laughs> and he didn't have a clue how to it use it. It is mine. <laughs> and he, boy, it was, and and he was all over it. And I mean, I'm sweating bullets, and it, and it's getting a little heated as he defended it, and I just felt like if everybody else gave theirs up, how can the next to the top keep theirs? And um, so finally, I said something. I said, Boyne, let's look at it this way. That's $10 a month. And, and remember, in 1977, $10 a month was a lot more than it is today. And I said, at the end of the year, um, you have uh, uh, you've saved $120 by not having that. And this was your business. And every dollar you save goes in your pocket or every dollar you don't spend goes in your pocket. Would you keep that speakerphone? And he got quiet. He, he stared at the speakerphone a minute, glared at me, and said, take the damn thing out. <laughs> and I learned a valuable lesson right there on the spot that I never forgot. If I will just take the money that a city has and remember, it's not my money. And it, but if it were my money, would I spend it on this? That's right. And boy, it was amazing the number of times I'd say, like, no, no, I wouldn't spend it if it was my money. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that I, I learned uh, about people, and, and, it, and uh, it doesn't matter if you're appointed or elected, but I'll, I never, probably in Rolla, Missouri, being a university town, that was as close to, quote, a liberal city council that I worked for. The, the rest of them were to the right of Attila the Hun. And they espoused all of those ultra-right wing philosophies till it came time to spend money. And I bet I was 30 years, 35 years into my, my career when it dawned on me that spending money is fun. Spending other people's money is a whole lot of fun. And that always prompted me. And, and I, was, I had the reputation of being tight-fisted. And, and, and my employees would come back with stories. They'd go to meetings with other employees. And I was the, the subject of conversation. And it was, who would want to work for him? He's so mean and, and, and tight-fisted. But I think that's what happens in, in government is, is that we don't. And you, know, you just got to have the courage to say no. You know, I I think that 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 hiring tall, that takes some courage that you build. To hire somebody that doesn't have the technical knowledge to run something, that's that takes courage that you do. And that's that's just the kinds of things I think if you're gonna be, if you're gonna successfully represent the interest of the taxpayer, because government has no money. I always viewed myself as a I operated a public trust. And the people in whatever city I was in, they gave me their hard-earned money in a trust fund to spend it on their behalf on things that benefited them. And if we can just get that concept across, we can operate a, a lot lot less um, extravagant. In, in Carrollton, in our operating budget, we save pushing $40 million over about 12 13 years by all this cutting that we did and streamlining the operation We had nearly 1,100 employees when I went there in 2001 we got it down under 800 employees doing the same thing and um, but it's just so easy to spend somebody else's money
2: mm-hmm. And one of the things I know uh, you you talk about when you're when you're hiring tall this the topic of conversation, what are you looking for if, as the listeners are going, how on earth do you do that? How do you hire somebody, you know, let's take Aaron. How do you hire somebody that has no background and know that they're going to be successful? So what what would you tell the listeners you look for, uh, that you, at least that you did, Leonard?
1: You know, one of the things that that uh, Aaron and I laugh a lot about, she came as a budget analyst uh, from, I think she was in Lubbock for a year or so. And she was like 24, 25 when, when, when we got her. And the assistant to the city manager position came open, and, and she had really no, no real qualifications for that job. But she applied. And there was a couple of other of the younger professionals that applied that had, had been working in the city manager's office. And in the interview, I told Aaron, I said, uh, where do you see yourself in 5, 10, 15 years? She said, Oh, I'm going to take your job. <laughs> that got my attention, you know, and therefore I just struck her from that. I want somebody in there trying to get my job. <laughs> but in, in all seriousness, by golly, she got my job. And and I mean, that's looking at someone that has the courage to say, I, this is where I want to be. They've got to focus. Mm-hmm. And that focus doesn't have to be on the particular job they're going for. I always... I was I always took great pride when when some of our people got recruited to other cities, and I'd tell our people. Sometimes I'd tell our people, "Hey, Grand Prairie has this great job opening. You ought to look at it." Not because they were a bad employee. I didn't want to leave them, lose them, but for their benefit. Mm-hmm. And gosh, every time we would think the world ended because Leonard left. You know, when I left Carol, they said the world has ended. Then then Aaron took over, and I said, "My God, where's she been all of our life?" <laughs> <laughs> you know, it, it's it's perspectives change, don't they? they? They sure do. And and that's you, you got to look in the heart, I think. And and what are they telling you? You know, John, when he went over to public works from police, John had visited with me on, on other occasions and he said, you know, I've been a cop 25 years uh the last Christmas he worked Christmas day he was he was a commander and he worked with his people. they had to get a, a baby out of a swimming pool that drowned on Christmas Day at Mark John you know and he said, I won't do that anymore. I've, I've had I, but going back John would volunteer in, in, in city hall for projects had nothing to do with the police department and we used him on compensation committees even though they were a 140 we were a 143 city and their comp was totally different. He did that stuff, and the things that um, that that he he showed said he he there's something about him that he'll go further than 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 what he could do I think it's a thirst for knowledge people that that show I want to learn I want to come here it it's people that say uh, when we interviewed Aaron to be permanent hr director uh, she competed against two candidates. One had 25 years experience. The other one was from the defense department. Her HR staff was 1,500 people. And at the time, Beth Borman was assistant manager and and she was over HR. And she and I sat down after we interviewed that lady. And we said, how do we let Erin down easily uh, when we interview her? Because how does she compete against that? She doesn't. And, and we saved Aaron for last. And so Aaron comes in and that usual brash Aaron, you know, she comes in. I said, you know, Aaron, there's just a whole lot of this. You don't know about HR. And she said, boy, that ain't the half of it. I don't hardly know anything. But let me tell you what I do know. I know what I don't know. And I'm not embarrassed to call the people that do know. And, it, it, and then, you know, the, the real kicker was I helped create this culture, which Carrollton has a unique culture. So you don't have to teach me the culture because I helped put it in. Okay, you're now the new HR director and we had the problem of telling the one with umpteen hundred employees and experience how this kid beat her out. And Aaron just did a phenomenal job in, in HR. And so you look for, it. It's you can't define it. Um, you know, it's like the Supreme Court justice said back in the 1930s, I think it's Frankfurter, that he can't define pornography but he knows it when he sees it and that's one of Tom on Hart's physique, famous quotes <laughs> yeah
2: <laughs> he uses that in presentations that very quote
1: yeah you know you just don't know it but you see it and you feel it and and you sense it in a person and you can have people that come in with strong technical resumes and they've got that you know that it's not saying you never hire hire somebody with a strong technical resume it's saying you don't have to hire somebody with a strong technical resume.
2: Yeah, and I and I love that because, Aaron, in, in the in the podcast we've done, we had a leadership recipe, and we talked about there's certain ingredients. Humility being the first one; you don't have to be the smartest person in the room, and curiosity yep. being the second one. You have to yep. ask a lot of questions and better questions to get better answers. And Aaron was phenomenal at that. I remember when she was new. She was calling or emailing us on everything. How did you do this? What laws impacted this? What worked for you? What didn't work for you? I don't want to make the, you know, I don't want to make those mistakes here. Here's our culture. She just, she was diving in on every issue to figure out what are people doing out there. And she never took that as that's what we need to do here. She took it as information and then formed it to fit what would work in Carrollton. And that says a lot because that's maturity, that sometimes you don't always see people knowing how to apply what they've learned. They just want to take what's there and put it here. And that does not work everywhere. Everybody is a little different in their
1: culture. Uh, you know, I, that, at least that's all important to say, because what works in Carrollton may not work in Grand Prairie, vice versa.
2: That's right.
1: Uh, it, it's all unique to, to where you are in place. And, uh, You know, Aaron was able to, you know, one of the other things that we always look for is the hallmark of Carrollton's innovation. Uh, You innovate, innovate, innovate. And uh, one of the things they did when we put uh, managed competition was how we we downsized and saved so much money that business units had to compete to keep the business in-house. And when we competed HR, they they rechanged it and they called it, I think, Workforce Services and they decided they, they were no longer the rules people. And that's what happens in most HR departments. They're the rules people.
2: The gatekeepers, which is the not what you want to be seen as.
1: And, and we're done with that. And mm-hmm. uh, so she downsized about a six-inch binder of rules down to a few pages of critical things. And then when, when Parks came in, Parks Maintenance, they had been through managed competition. What we did is... If you won your competition, you had a contract with the city manager to provide certain services for certain resources, and we measured them. It was very quantitative, and uh, those outcomes. And the parks director came in, and he said, you're killing me because the director of competition is going to cancel our contract in the summer because we rely so on temporary workers for grass cutting and things like that, and we can't stay in compliance with the contract what can you do to help? And so they analyzed it and they said, tell you what we'll do Cause he said, we, we lose a temp position. It takes you three weeks to fill it. So they said, tell you what we'll do. We'll, what we'll do is we'll, we'll take applications. If somebody comes in, that's good. We'll ask them to wait. We'll call in whoever you want on your staff to interview them. They will interview them. Then if they like them, then we'll send them for their drug test right there on the spot and make a, an offer to them that day contingent on their drug test and um, we can get them hired. So they literally took a three week process into a three day process to make him competitive because they recognize that they made him competitive. I've spoken to some private sector organizations and use that example. And their eyes get big. And I say, well, so what goes on in your organization? And they say, well, you have to requisition a position. And then the person that reviews that goes on vacation for two weeks. Then they come back. And then then they review things. And then you take applications. And they review them for a week. And then they send them out. And then back and forth. And then when we interview, then it's two more weeks before we make another offer and that's the private sector way of doing it very rules very structured and that innovation is is what you look for in in saying we can do it cheaper, better, faster and friendlier and that was the whole watchword of, of what we did in managed competition
2: and i managed competition was a huge And Nobody had done that, that I'm aware of, Leonard, because I knew about that. I knew about the competition and some would, you know, some would be challenged by that. They didn't care for it. You know, I know, I know uh, that happened, I believe, with IT either shortly after I got there or while I was there, but there was business reasons for doing it and they had to show value. That was the bottom line, correct?
1: Yeah, you know, one of the things we, we, we started, especially with IT, and, and everybody goes off to conferences, they see the latest and greatest IT system, they got to have it. They, they spend a half a million dollars on it to come back, they overburden the organization putting it in, then they only use half the crap in it. Right. And uh, so we started making people do a business case for a system, and they had to demonstrate if you're going to put this system in, why are you doing it? And it's always, oh, it's going to make us more efficient. And, and our watch were oh, more efficient. That means you can cut costs. Where are you going to cut the costs? Well, we are going. It, we won't need as many clerks. Okay, how many? Three. Well, what they they banked on is the traditional government way of, okay, they bought the system, we forget about it. We went back after the system and said, we see you got still got 10 clerks. You said you'd do it with seven oh, so you better get down to seven or we're going to have issues. And, and it's that accountability you got to put in. You know, the, the private sector's got bottom line accountability financially. You got to meet your numbers. That sounds good. Council members are always saying they want that, but it really doesn't work. That, that form of accountability doesn't. But you can put a lot of other layers of accountability that you hold people to. And part of being tall is, you like to play the game, you know, people would say, well, we're competitive already. Really? Well, Jerry Jones says the Cowboys are going to win the Super Bowl every year, but they don't quite measure up when they go on the field of battle. So clearly you're ready to go on the field of battle and compete against your private sector people. And as brutal as all that sounds during the time we were there, the only two IT was outsourced before I came Mm -hmm. Um, We outsourced solid waste, which I don't know why any government entity wants to provide solid waste themselves. We outsourced that, and that saved about $5 million um, from that. And we outsourced fleet. Again, another service that I don't know why any, any government agency wants to provide fleet. Those were the only two things that we fully outsourced during all that stuff, changes that we made. Now, Parks, when they, maintenance, when they went through their uh, competition, they analyzed their lines of business. And they determined that um, maintaining medians, they were were competitive and could demonstrate it financially. They were competitive in every area of of maintenance except right-of-way maintenance. They weren't competitive. They said we want to outsource right-of-way maintenance. And did it, and to this day, I still see private contractors out because the con- private contractors are better at right-of-way maintenance. And those are the kinds of things that, that get people. But all of those, those ideas uh, come from the bottom up, not top down. And, and when Scott Whitaker, the, the director of, of Parks and Recreation in, in Carrollton, um, went through managed competition, they were number two. The solid waste was number one and uh, Parks and, and Recreation. And Scott put together what he called quality improvement teams of rank-and-file employees out in the field, and they generated ideas. And he has a, a, a guy that works for him out in the field that's a, a maintenance worker named Gennaro, and Gennaro runs a landscape business on the side, builds fences, does all this stuff, sprinkler, certified sprinkler. And one day in one of the meetings, he threw out some suggestions and they said, Gennaro, that's a great idea. Why didn't you ever suggest this before? Well, the eye-opener was, well, nobody ever asked for my input before. Mm -hmm. And when you're fighting for survival, it's amazing how creative people can get. And, And their philosophy there was they would have a meeting, say, Thursday afternoon, and somebody would throw out an idea. They would take Friday to kind of flesh it out. Monday, they'd implement it. To see if it worked, they didn't study it; they implemented, and that sense of urgency uh, moved people forward. And so that's the other other things you look at. Somebody was talking the other day in a, in a city that, that a director had moved on, and I said, "Thank God, that person could hardly breathe. They they were lacked energy. So I don't know how they did it, but they had been there seven or eight years, and they decided to move into another another line of work, but uh, you don't want people that don't have a sense of urgency. That's that that against part of that tall.
2: Yeah.
0: Leonard have- is, is innovation, the, the driver behind higher tall for you, the fact that somebody who's steeped in all kinds of technical prowess, they just may not have, you know, what I call the naive curiosity, yeah. the, bra- the bravery to ask the stupid question, it, I mean, is the that a driver behind that.
1: it to me? the if I'm applying for a job, I'm not really qualified for as far as like uh, practical experience. I must be an an intuitive type person that's going to seek out answers. I I, wanna, I I got some courage about me to do that in the first place, and and innovation is is the thing that that's that's solely lacking. Um, I think, in in government, and and I explain it this way. It's not that government workers are bad people. Um, I I used to do, when I was at Joplin, most of my job was economic development. and I worked with a lot of private sector CEOs, and they used to say, we couldn't do your job. And one, one time we were talking, he said, well, you know, when we come up with an idea and we go try it and it doesn't work, we go to the back room and figure out why it didn't work and take whatever action you guys call a news conference and <laughs> the public and say, look <laughs> how stupid we were to try this. And, and I think it's fear of, of trying new things. You know, I was, it's a little bit, you know, I hate suits. If I ever find the bastard that, that made neckties, I'm going to string him up with it. <laughs> you know, and when I came here, I did not wear the suit. And I remember uh, one of our directors one time was flying back from Austin with a city manager from another city. And I became the topic of conversation about the fact I go to meetings where there's elected officials doesn't wear a suit. It wasn't long that we didn't wear anything but jeans in my organization, including me. And, uh, uh, it, and it, it's just getting out of that traditional mindset. And, and I'd have people say, well, you can't do that. You know, when we went to the modified work week, you know, you can't do it. Yeah, watch us. Um, you know, and and so it's it's trying to, to to if we just keep doing things the way we've always done them, we're never going to get there. And accountability is becoming, I think, the watchword of the world now, with with all the cell phone videos and things like that. We just gotta be willing to to take risks. And and part of that tall and having the courage to hire tall is looking for that person that has courage and 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 willing to try new things. And to me, it's inherent if I'm willing to try for a job that I don't meet the basic qualification. I'm an innovator.
2: That's right. And you have the courage to do it. I also I love the reference uh because when we were at the conference, Randy. He had uh, Aaron, who is now the city manager in Carrollton, that he had brought up, the one he referenced that was the assistant to, and another lady that was up there that he had had uh, helped, a mentor, and and I believe she was also in city management, right, Leonard?
1: Uh, assistant manager in Addison, deputy assistant manager, manager in Addison.
2: Okay. And, and it was interesting because he also referenced himself as a change disruptor, right? And, and so I thought that concept... And they were asking how it came about somebody in the audience says how do you get these ideas and they're like oh my god he would send us napkins on the flight and we were like oh another napkin <laughs> And would have all of these ideas written on a napkin and then they had to go vet them you know and they were laughing about it not in a bad way but they would say we would have to shoot holes in it or realize this is a great idea but they would go back and talk to you about it, right? And then, <laughs> Leonard, tell them a little bit about that. I thought that was funny on the how those come about.
1: Well, I mean, uh, when I was young in the profession, and I always tell young people, I read every magazine that that professional organizations put out for free. That's too tight to go. Well, I didn't have the money to go buy, buy subscriptions, but parks and rec organizations, public, I read all that stuff constantly, and so I'm, I've always been a – an idea junkie from from way back, and um, we put together. Aaron's big laugh used to be. Um, um, I, I put together the Public Employee Benefit Alliance. I think it's folded up since uh, I left, and Susan Smith retired. Piba. From,
2: yeah, that was PIBA, right? just—I yeah. think they just folded, though.
1: It yeah, just came out. I, I put that together, and Susan Smith and I did, and and it was buying benefits collectively, mm-hmm. drive down costs, and. I'd go off those meetings and I'd sit there and something would happen. I'd have an idea. Well, when I'd go back to the airport on Fridays at, at noon to catch my flight back to Carrollton, I'd be sitting in the bar having a beer <laughs> and I'd think about it and I'd call Aaron and say, I have an idea. And she would just cringe say, thanks for ruining my weekend. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah, it was always and, on a Friday, she said.
1: <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, it was Friday afternoons from those meetings, but... You know, at night I'd get ideas and send emails. You know, look at this or that. And uh, it, at first, it was foreign, but when you, a culture of an organization, it, uh, I was working with a, a, a private company that, that uh, got the Baldridge Award, and they were were talking to me one day about how they'd changed their culture and. I said, yeah, I was working with an organization to change their culture. They said, oh, well, our consultants that helped us change our culture, they, they, they had this book they'd published. And so they, I'm going to share it. So they sent me a book, and they meant real well. It was full of math formulas of, of, of all this analysis. And I said, culture, when you, when you boil it down to the lowest common denominator, since they use numbers, I'll use that term, it's nothing more than shared habits of how we live our life. That's the culture. A family has a culture. Every, anywhere there's two or three people, there's a culture. And it's, it's those shared habits. And, and to change a culture, you have to change habits. And once you get those changed, it takes about three years. And it's brutal to change a culture. I mean, changing, I used to smoke like a fiend, you know, and quitting smoking. It's, it's tough. I uh, haven't mastered getting away from whiskey yet but you know I'll work on that <laughs> when I die. But,
2: You're retired now you can work on that later.
1: That, that's right exactly. <laughs> and uh, but changing habits is, is is tough business and so it takes about 3 years in an organization to really instill new habits of how we do business and even it it uh they came back staff came back uh, at one from a conference in the region and 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 Carrollton had been almost the subject of the, one of the presentations. You don't want to go that horrible place. And employees reacted negatively. I had one employee come in in parks and said he couldn't work for us because uh, one of our things we looked at in, 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 um, in parks, and, and when we started out changing the culture, If you look at what cities do, we really compete against the taxpayers that give us the money. And and one of them was our library. We loaned out first-run movies. And back then, Blockbuster happened to be right across the street from us trying to rent the same movies. We're telling people, come get them free. Charging sales tax they sent to the library so we could buy more copies of first-run movies, try to put them out of business. So we stopped that. And we also said... uh, I joked when I came, you know, I noticed that, gosh, there's a karate studio on every corner in, in Carrollton. We had a church, a self-storage, and a karate, and a donut shop. That's how every intersection in Carrollton is marked. So if you want to know if you come to Carrollton, if you leave and you don't see donut shop and church on corners and, and karate, then you're not in Carrollton anymore, but we had all that, and yet we were offering karate. Why? And we were offering it for less than the private companies could do it because they were paying rent, taxes, payroll. So we, the council, said if we're going to offer one of these services, we have to charge market rates. What's the market? And so instead of twenty-five dollars for karate, if you have to pay a hundred everywhere, it's hundred dollars. And he came in and said, "Well, everybody, not everybody could." Uh, afford to take karate. And I said, oh, my God, I never thought of that. I said, there's a clause in the U.S. Constitution that says to be president, you got to have a black belt in karate, and President Bush does not have a black belt in karate. How could that have happened? I wanted to be a rocket scientist in Wichita Falls. <laughs> but they didn't have a rocket science class at the city. The government can't provide everything to everybody. And if some kid grows up and doesn't get to learn to kick somebody in the face, they'll be okay if they want to. And he just looked at me and said, I can't work in a place like this. And he left and quit. We had another person in environmental services quit. And one director quit. That was it. And the rest of the staff, when I left in 2017, the bulk of the management team and employees were the same people that were there when I came in 2001. What happened? They changed habits, and they were quite proud of how they operated and what they did. And Aaron has, has changed a lot uh, of things, but they're still very proud and still have a very unique uh, culture that, that still mimics that. But it took three hard years of, of beating and yelling and, and sometimes insulting uh Until we got to the point that I didn't have to do that anymore, I could just nourish that culture then,
2: yeah, you have to be able to you have to be able to live it like you said. once you've got it established, then everything has to feed to the culture and and we do the same thing here, you know, it's different our culture culture in Carrollton very good, culture here very good, but very different, right? Yep. Uh, we believe in different things, different things work for us versus you guys, but both great cities to work for. And it's, uh, as you look at that, it's so interesting to know what works for you. As you, as you looked at change, as Aaron looks at change today, you have to know what's going to work in your city. And when you're hiring tall, what does that mean? You know, what does that mean for for you and your city? It cannot be, you've got to, you've got to know what your goals and your values are, and find what hiring tall mean, uh, you know, means to you in that organization, and what will
1: work. Yep, absolutely. It's it's all unique to each city. Is unique and different, and and what works one place just bombs in another. And you know, I'm I'm like the big home run hitters. I struck out more than I hit the home runs on the change. And but you got you do have to foster in any organization a culture of courage to manage up. Mm-hmm and it was not uncommon for my staff to come in and sit down and say that's the dumbest idea leonard i'm a new
0: i'm a new director i'm a new supervisor i'm a new i'm a new manager i could be anywhere in the mix i'm not i'm not in the cmo so you're 42 years of advice and i like what i hear but man alive how do we I, do I, it? i've got a i've got a lot i feel like i got My whole life's on the line here. So I've got to hire somebody. It's just, you know, I, you and I both grew up in the era where, when it came to computer stuff, we'll hire big blue. Nobody's going to get fired for hiring IBM. Yeah. So easier to play it safe. So what do you tell me?
1: In in my organization, I like to hire failures. And that worked for us. And I wanted to hire people that had failed as long as they didn't, as long as they learned from their failures. Let me put it that way. And we talked in terms of there's a difference between a failure of the heart and a failure of the mind. Failure of the mind is going out and getting snockered and getting in a city vehicle and crashing and burning. A failure of the heart is coming up with an idea of, of how to mow the grass differently to save the taxpayers' money and, and make the park more attractive, it didn't quite work out, but at least we tried. And I think you, you have to, to make sure that people understand that that is not talk. That's the philosophy and the, the, the guiding value of the organization. And you would have to know as that that new director and you've got to make that hire that you, you probably will be better off hiring someone that, that that has some failures along the way than hiring somebody that comes in dragging a culture that's doesn't that's, that fit us. And um, I, I think there, there's a, a lot of things that you, you've got to make sure when you hire that they fit the culture.
2: That's key. That is absolute key. I think Thomas Edison, Pardon didn't all. he say that? There's a quote, Randy, we've referenced before, is I, I haven't failed. I found 10,000 ways not to do that, right? Yep. It's the ability to get, it's ability to try, be brave, take a risk. You fail in the moment, but it doesn't mean you are a failure. You rise up and try it again and tweak it. And eventually, guess what? You're going to find something you're like, oh my gosh, there it is. And, and people love it, but you've got to be willing to take the risk. And you've got to have a culture that supports that.
1: And a sense of humor to laugh at yourself when you screw up. You know, at the conference, I told the story of me selling grandma's bones. And uh, I got the bright idea in Rolla, Missouri. We had a buyer that buy the cemetery, it was about half developed and give us a pot of money and relieve us of a nightmare of, of managing a cemetery that went back into the 1800s. And I thought it's the best idea ever. The city council did till we went to the meeting to award the the contract. And Lord help me, there was people coming out of the graves at us. And this this woman stands up sobbing, holding her baby and yelling at me, you're selling my grandma's bones. I'd never thought of that till that night. And I started telling, oh, we don't want to do this. Stop, stop, stop. They were going to go through with it. I finally talked them out of it. And, and, you know, the next day we laughed about how stupid Leonard was for ever coming up with such a boneheaded idea. Uh, But uh, it's, you you just got to be willing to to fail at, at times or you get nowhere in life.
2: And you have to have safety. You know, we've talked about that on the show, Leonard. You have to have psychological safety where you work that, that you can present an idea. You're the boss. You're the top guy and your team can poke holes in it and challenge you on Leonard this does not make yep. sense i know you think this is amazing this is stupid yep. <laughs> you know That's i know all. aaron would aaron would say this is stupid this yep. is this cannot work and you would listen and i think we've talked to our audience about that through this show
1: yes yeah you, you got to listen to your people that they know better than than you you're sitting in the office and you you'd like to get out, but you can't get past the door for all the stuff, and you can really get out of touch without realizing it. And uh, it, it, I just can't emphasize enough about the need to to feel comfortable dealing with all levels of the organization. And I I, I have people that have worked for me that managed uh, like maintenance workers, and they get around them, and and they were as nervous as a long-tailed cat in a room full of rocking chairs. <laughs> <laughs> it, it was written all over. I don't want to be here. I don't know what to say to these folks and it, they can't relate. And and therefore, there's not going to be two way communication. And uh, so it, it, it's important to to be a, approachable. You've got to be approachable or people won't come talk to you.
2: That's right. Well, we we so much appreciate your stories being on the show. Uh, I'd like to open it up for any Parting comments, any words of wisdom beyond what you've already shared, which was amazing uh, for the good of the group.
0: What didn't we ask you that we should have asked?
2: Yeah, you? yeah.
0: <laughs> Just don't take me too serious.
2: There you go.
1: But, um, no, uh, um, you know, I, I, I was telling a friend that I had lunch with today. We were, he was, he's toward the end of his career. He's not city government. And I, I told him that I, I never worked a day in my life. You know, I had one of those jobs that I loved. Now, I had some days that I hated, but really, uh, that's a real key is finding that that profession. And and I hear more and more people in local government talking about how they hate it. For God's sake, do something else. I, right. I used to have my infamous to, to staff members that weren't cutting in. I'd bring them in and tell them the ship's left the harbor and you're not on it. And you need to do yourself a favor. Uh you either need to dive in and swim like hell and hope the captain lets you back on the ship or go get on a ship, going to the destination that fits your lifestyle and who you are and you'll be better and your family will be better. And it works. I, I had that conversation with a man in, in Edmond and after I came to Carrollton, uh, he had gone to work for a County and and the County commissioner called me for some information and, when I returned the county commissioner's call, and I'd been gone about a year, the secretary answered, and I asked if he was in. She said he was, and I said, would you tell him that Leonard Martin returned his call? And she said, oh, my God, are you, are you the Leonard that was in Edmond? I said, yeah, I am. And I thought, oh, crap, what pothole did I not fix? And uh, she said, David talks about you constantly, that you saved his life. Oh, And I was going to fire him, and he knew I was, that he wasn't performing. He was in a job he couldn't, but he moved on. And and he asked me would I recommend him for that job, and the elements of that job fit him. And so sometimes we're afraid to help people move on when they're caught in that trap of of being miserable. Because when, when I'm miserable, I make everybody around me miserable.
2: Yeah, you've got to have those crucial conversations. I just had the exact same thing with an employee in the city this week. And and called me crying, called me that they're miserable. I said, you know, that choice is yours to make.
0: Yep. If
2: you're if you're miserable, why are you saying you love your job? You don't mm-hmm. love your job. You If you're if you're miserable, find something you love, because guess right. Right now, the choice is yours. But tomorrow yeah. it may not be. You may force somebody's hand to make the decision for you. Do you want that? And they ultimately resigned and retired and they were eligible for retirement. And and that's genuinely what I meant, just like you did. You're you're doing it because you care about the person. You may not like the work, but you care about the person. And all we want is if you're a really great leader, is for the success of our people, whether it's with us or with somebody else.
0: Yep, absolutely.
2: Anything else? right
0: Appreciate it, Leonard. It was great. Thanks, Leonard. <laughs> Thanks for watching and listening to Grow Great, a city government leadership podcast. For Lisa Norris, I'm Randy Cantrell. Be well, do good, grow great. The website is growgreat.com.